Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are concluding our series on the temptations of Christ with James Jordan. As always, we do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes. Specifically, we wanted to remind you about the Theopolis Blogcast, which you can find on your podcast streaming services. The Theopolis Blogcast is another audio project of ours, and it's simple readings of our articles on our website, so that you can take in writings from Peter Lightheart, James Jordan, and all of our writers while you're on the go. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is James Jordan discussing the temptations of Christ. Now, in Luke, and I ask you to turn to chapter 4, but we'll start in chapter 3, uh, we also have a, a second account of the temptations of Christ. In Mark, we're simply told that he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He was out there with the wild beasts, and then uh, that's as much as Mark says about it. In Luke, uh, we have a second account, another elaborate account of the temptations. And in Luke chapter 3, we have again the baptism of Jesus Christ, which uh, invests him with authority as the high priest and as the second Adam, the new son of God. And we have this in verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 3. Now it came about that when all the people were baptized, then Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as it was thought, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. And then we have a genealogy running all the way back to Adam. About 30 years of age, that was the age of anointing kings and priests. So David uh, did not become king till he was 30. Joseph was elevated to office when he was 30. Ezekiel was anointed as high priest when he was 30. All the high priests were anointed when they were 30. 30 is the age of investiture. And if we read to the end of Luke chapter 3, we find the genealogy goes back to Enosh, and then Enosh is the one of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So, Jesus as the Son of God is the second Adam, and that is what Luke is seeking to establish. And it is as the second Adam, the Son of God, that Jesus is tempted. I'm not denying here that Christ is also the second person of the Trinity, in that sense the unique, only begotten uh, Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, and God of God. But that's not the point of Luke here. The expression Son of God here means second Adam. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, while tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. <clears throat> now the devil has tempted him all during this time, and now this is the climax of the temptation. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, that is, you've now been baptized and anointed as the second Adam, so let's see your stuff. If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the inhabited earth, of the world, in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and their glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle, or wing, of the temple, 
and said to him, If you are the Son of God, cast yourself down from here, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is also written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had finished every temptation, and we see that these three constitute every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And I'll keep reading a little bit further. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and to recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, which is a reference to the year of Jubilee. And he closed the book and gave it to the attendant and sat down, sat down to preach. Notice, uh, preaching was a good deal simpler in those days than we tend to think of it today. No rhetoric, just a guy sitting on a chair explaining the Bible to everybody else. Sitting enthroned, but sitting down. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, then it goes on, and there's more of the passage, but that's as far as we need to read to make the points we need to make today. You'll notice that in Luke's account of the temptations, the order is changed. The second two are reversed. Uh, in, in Matthew's account, which we've been using and which is almost always used, uh, in which uh, is probably more of a theological order than a literal one, because Luke says he is writing everything down in order. So Luke probably gives us a chronological account, where Matthew gives us a theological account. At any rate, Matthew gives us the temptation to cast yourself down from the wing of the temple, second, and then third, and climactically, the temptation to take the kingdoms of the world. Luke gives us the temptation to take the kingdoms of the world as second, and third, the temptation to cast himself down from the wing of the temple. Um, I'm not sure exactly why all this has changed or what the reasons are. not prepared to address the question, but there you have it. If you're curious, I have no answer. Uh, now, let's review what we looked at last week, and then today we'll finish up with the third temptation. And we'll use the Matthew passage because we've been using it, so if you want to keep in your Bible, turn back to Matthew chapter 4. But we'll be referring now to what we just finished reading in Luke. We have it before our minds. We saw that Jesus is tempted after the what we call the probationary 40. After the 40 years or the 400 years or the 4,000 years or the 40 days in this case, then the temptation comes. Adam was tempted at the beginning of such a period of time and fell. He was not willing to wait until God invested him with power and glory and authority, at least in a preliminary way but he sought to take power and glory and authority unto himself. Jesus, however, has waited. He has been invested with power and authority and glory, and he has fasted the 40 days and 40 nights. That is, he has not taken advantage of the good things that God has given, but has suspended enjoying them. He has, And that's what fasting is. Fasting, in any sense, is suspending enjoying the things that God has given until the right time. And Jesus has gone through that suspension, and now, in every way, Jesus has shown himself worthy as the second Adam to get these benefits, as we saw. 
it's entirely appropriate for him now to take the benefits that the first Adam lost and for, uh, did not get because of his sin. And so Jesus is tempted to turn stones into bread. Why suspend it any longer? You've shown yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, and now it's time to have the reward. Go ahead and turn the stones to bread. Go ahead and make a great demonstration of your power. Go ahead and take charge of the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus could have done so morally and ethically. It would have been appropriate for Jesus to take advantage of his position. He could have made himself the king at that point. Had he done so, however, as we mentioned last time, he would have been all alone because there would have been no salvation for anyone else. He would not have died for our sins. He would have been the king of the world. He would have been enthroned in glory, the glory that Adam did not get because he tried to seize it for himself. Jesus could have had it right now. But if he had taken it, he would have had it alone. And the first thing he would have had to do in the exercise of his glory and authority was condemn everybody in the world to hell. And so God's purposes for the creation would never have been fulfilled, and the entire point of the incarnation would never have come to pass. And so it is impossible in terms of the plan of salvation for Jesus to take up the robe of authority at this point. No, it's only after his resurrection and ascension that Jesus says, all power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He didn't have it before that time. Oh, as a son of God, he had it. As the eternal God, he had it. But as the second Adam, Jesus took all power and authority after the cross, at the ascension, and doesn't have it now. There's a further suspension of time he has to go through and carry the cross before he can have these things. All the same, the temptations that come to Jesus now that he's anointed as the Messiah, as the representative man, are the same temptations that come to us. And Jesus' way of dealing with those temptations is the way we need to deal with them. And the first temptation we looked at was the temptation to turn stones into bread. Satan comes and says, now you know what it's like to be hungry. Now you really know what it's like to be hungry. And you'll remember, says Satan, that when I confronted Eve in the garden, Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. And God made it good for food, so why should you wait any longer? Let's get before our minds one more time what it was like in the garden. God has said you may eat of every single tree. Every tree is for man. But temporarily, he said, I don't want you to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eventually you will get to eat of it because, according to Genesis 1, every tree is for man to eat from. But temporarily you are to suspend, you are to fast for 40 days or 40 years. For some probationary 40, you are to fast from eating of this one tree. And it is good for food, and it is a delight to the eyes, but you can't have it right now. Satan comes with the same temptation to Jesus, and he says, it's good for food. Why wait any longer? You've earned the right. And Jesus says, yes, bread is good, but only on God's terms. Man shall not live on bread alone. He does need bread. And Jesus came to give bread. He fed the 5,000. He fed the 4,000. He gives us bread and wine every week. But bread alone, no way. On every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we saw that this is a problem for us as well. We tend, the temptation comes to us to seize, to get hold of God's good gifts in an unlawful manner. Sometimes the temptation is very crass, to steal something. Most small boys at one time or another have lifted a pack of chewing gum or a candy bar from a drugstore. Uh, that's just one minor example. 
There are more blatant examples of attempts to steal uh, God's good gifts, get them in an unlawful manner, from uh, robbing banks to counterfeiting money to all kinds of things. We looked at some more subtle forms, socialism, temptation to give men bread without the word, uh, tendency to tithe as little as possible, tendency to go into debt, to have a good life before we're old enough or before we're ready or before we're really able to. How much debt living there is today. People watch TV and they want to live the way people on TV live. Nobody lives the way people on TV live. Now, television is not true to life. Even real downbeat TV shows like Hill Street Blues are not really true to life. I mean, things aren't as bad as they're portrayed in Hill Street Blues, and things are not as good as they're portrayed other places. People don't live like that. Uh, people's lives are much more drab than they are on TV, and most people don't have all those nice things that people have on TV. But when you watch it, you think, well, why shouldn't I live that way? And so go get into a lot of debt and live that way, and then you're stuck. The Bible doesn't prohibit all debt, but it certainly says to avoid it as much as possible. And that's a temptation, a temptation not to wait, a temptation to take it before we're ready. And then the second temptation comes to Jesus Christ, and that is, we'll look at that a little bit more this morning, the devil took him into the holy city and stood him on the pinnacle or wing of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give His angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not... Put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is a very interesting and subtle temptation, and I don't know that I've gotten everything out of it. In fact, I'm sure I haven't. You remember last Sunday's sermon? God's Word is inexhaustible, and so we keep pulling out of it things old and new, new to us. But the wing of the temple, if you'll think back to all the lessons that we've had on various parts of the Bible, and remember what the wing is. The cherubim have four wings. And those wings extend out to the four corners of the earth. And they signify God's overarching protection of the world. So we get under the wings of God and we hide in the shadow of the Almighty and under his wings. And you remember that the man uh, garment that the Israelite had had four corners on it. It came down in the front and down in the back like an apron. And it had a tassel on each of the four corners, which were the four foundational pillars of the man's house that he wore around himself. So that if a man stood still, you can imagine the analogy that he was like living at being in a house with four foundation stones. And if a man, uh, according to the book of Deuteronomy 22, if a man goes in and sleeps with his father's concubine, he is uncovering the wing or defiling the wing or cornerstone of his house. That is, he's tearing down his father's house by pulling out the cornerstone. And this is an analogy the Bible uses over and over again. And here, what this literally says is, he stood him on the wing of the temple. And that is the edge or the corner of God's overarching protection. You can imagine the land of Israel as under God's protection. And outside that land are the defiled, those who are still in league with Satan. And Jesus is taken to the very edge and... Cast yourself out. Cast yourself out from under God's protection because the angels will bear you up with their hands. And we could take the time to go back to Ezekiel chapter 1 and other places, but you'll find that the, four cher the cherubim with their four wings, underneath each wing is a hand like the hand of a man. 
And this hand reaches out and picks Ezekiel up and carries him through the air. And this hand, which is under the wing of the cherubim, reaches out and assists humanity. Angels were created not to rule the world, but to help men. And the hand in the Bible is frequently a sign of help. And so Satan is saying, look, if you cast yourself out beyond the wing of God's overarching protection, the hand of the cherubim will come out and protect you. And you won't fall and hurt yourself. In fact, you won't dash your foot against a stone. That's the background of this statement here. The curious thing is, Jesus did come to do exactly that, as we saw last week. He cast himself out of the city. He went across the brook Kedron into the Mount of Olives. He was brought back in and judged and cast out and crucified at the place of the skulls, the defiled territory. And his foot was bruised. Nail was driven right through it. And God did not protect him. He called out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there was no answer. Because there was three hours of darkness. And there was no light. So, strange temptation. What does it mean? Well, Eve said, Satan said to Eve, Look, this fruit is a delight to the eyes. And you can see it good. And what Eve was supposed to do was use her two eyes as her witnesses for judgment. Just as God saw everything that he had made and pronounced it good, so Eve could see the fruit and see that it was a delight to the eyes and pronounce it good, even though God had said, don't eat it yet. She made her own judgment. She would test God. And when Jesus is commanded to do this, this is something that would have been visible to everyone. And it is to test God. Give man some way to evaluate God. And Jesus' answer is, man does not evaluate God. God evaluates man. The temptation here is to rule by sight and by means of a miracle. And Satan wants Christ to do that, and Christ refuses. Now, we saw last week that our temptation here is the same. We would like for the church to look powerful and beautiful to the world. We would like to be able to show the world that God is the omnipotent one. We would like to show the world that all truth and wisdom is in Christ. We would not like to be humiliated in the arena of politics or in the arena of intellectual discourse or in the arena of theology and of the church, how pitiful our Reformed churches are compared to the vast empires of fundamentalism or of evangelicalism or of Roman Catholicism or of any just about everybody else except us. We have to limp because our heel has been wounded. Jesus did cast himself out. And here we are, our temptation that comes to us is to put God to the test. Don't you get tired sometimes of being in a little teeny-weeny group, a sect? Don't worry about it. You know, we're in the same church as St. Paul. You know the name of St. Paul's church? It's in the book of Acts. He admits to the church that he was a member of. The sect that is everywhere evil spoken against. That was St. Paul's church. And I think that's our church. So it's not so bad I don't mean our church here locally, but Reformed and Theonomic Christianity in general. Aren't we the sect that is everywhere evil spoken against? We would not like to be that way. 
We would like to have apologetics and proofs to go out and show men to cast ourselves off from the pinnacle of the temple and say, you see, God bears us up. He's the one with all the wisdom. He's the one with all the power. And he can do it. We would like to be able to do great dramatic things. And the temptation is for us to avoid the offense of the cross. Not literally. We're all sufficiently evangelical and fundamental to know that it's blood theology that saves And some of the things that grossly offend the humanist mind we're quite happy to set forth. But in more subtle ways, we would like to minimize our apparent weakness. We would like to minimize the suffering of the church and appear strong. And I think our problem is that we forget that the church always limps. I made this point last week. The church always limps because its heel is been bruised, and it always will. Even during the latter-day glory, when the church rules the world, it will limp will always limp. Jacob wrestled with the angel and received a blessing. And what was the blessing? He got his thigh put out of joint, and he limped for the rest of his life. That was the blessing. St. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. We're not told what it was, thank goodness, because if we knew what it was, then everybody who had the same thing would think he was specially blessed. Paul asked for it to be removed, and God said no. And Paul said he came to understand that God's power is perfected in weakness. The church always limps. That being the case, we have to ask, how is it that we're going to win? If the church always limps because its foot is crushed, how are we going to win? You look at the secularists, and they have two strong legs. Their leg is not out of joint. Their heel hasn't been crushed. So how are we going to defeat them? The answer is simple. Their head has been crushed. You see, the same time our heel was crushed, their head was crushed. So they can't organize anything. looks as if we can't either. We can't walk together, it seems, as Christians, but we do have an uncrushed head who organizes everything for us. They may be able to walk real well, but they cannot get it together because their head has been crushed. They cannot organize anything effectively over any period of time. Now, I would like, just for a little bit of comfort, to take you to the Old Testament and see how David responded when he was in exile. Let's turn to one of the many Old Testament backgrounds to this situation. Remember that many times God's people were cast out beyond the wing of the temple. Jacob had to go into a strange land, was reduced into slavery by his father-in-law, escaped back, and he got his heel wounded in the process, or his leg. Israel was taken into Egypt. There are many of these exiles where God's people were cast out beyond the wing of the temple. And God's hand did reach out and sustain them in the middle of this and did pull them back under his wing of protection. Only on the cross do we find that the hand is missing and Jesus has to bear the suffering. But let's look at David. David's life is always a great comfort to everybody. I guess we'd all like to think of ourselves as those who are after God's own heart. And that's true in Christ. Let's look at what happened when David was exiled. There's a whole lot here that's exactly parallel to Christ uh, geographically. David crosses the Kedron and he ascends the Mount of Olives. And if you watch that, the geography of that, it goes very closely to what the Gospels give us. But in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, we read, why don't you turn to 2 Samuel? 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, we read that David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went, and his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Now he's allowing his feet to be damaged, you see. Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. And then the story continues from that point. Lots of parallels. 
For an explanation, the cross reference is to Isaiah chapter 20, verses 2 to 4. At that time the Lord spoke through Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and loosen the sackcloth from your hips and take your shoes off your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. And the Lord said, Even as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years, can you imagine that, as a sign and token against Egypt and Ethiopia, so the king of Assyria will lead away the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. And they will be dismayed and ashamed. So there's shame involved here. The damaging and uncovering the foot is a sign of David's humiliation. Now, what had happened with David? Let's think back. David started off well, but very early in life, David established a pattern of sinning. He started collecting wives and concubines and acting like an oriental potentate with lots of wives. He wasn't supposed to do that. And after he had spent a number of years allowing, indulging himself in this particular sin, there came a time in which God removed the restraint. And David went, as all men will, when God removes the restraint, way down into this particular sin. One day David got up about 6 o'clock in the evening after loafing around all day, and he had the radio on, and the radio was saying, I tell you what I want. And he looked out the window, and there was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And so David said, Yeah, I'm the king. And so he took what he wanted. And then David had a son named Amnon who was going to inherit the throne. And Amnon said, Well, Daddy takes what he wants. So, like father, like son, Amnon figured he would take what he wants. And so he pretends to be sick. And he gets his sister in the room, Tamar, his half-sister, and he attacks her. She sins in failing to cry out. She tries to protect the royal house from the ignominy of rape, and she's ravished. David doesn't do anything about it because David is compromised in his mind and he finds it difficult to deal with this particular kind of sin because he still feels guilty about it himself. In a sense, he shouldn't. He should have had enough confidence in justification to say, even though I'm guilty of this particular thing, I can still do what God requires because I'm justified and I don't have to act out of my guilt. I have to act out of faithfulness to the law. But David acted out of his sense of guilt and just left it alone and hoped it would go away. But it didn't, of course. Tamar's brother, Absalom, her avenger, uh, killed Amnon and then led a revolt against the kingdom. And that's what's going on here. God prospered Absalom, the rebel, and the rebel against the church, the rebel against authority, and David was driven out. And now there's something interesting that happens, and I say this because... Uh, we have to put up with it here to a certain extent. And I don't think that anybody here is guilty of the sin of David, and yet God brings these things to pass in the life of the church to keep us humble and to keep our foot nice and bruised. We read in Second Samuel 16, starting in verse 5, When King David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera. He came out con cursing continually as he came. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and his left. And thus Shemai said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed and worthless fellow. See, Shemai thought that he was a serpent treader. And so he thought he'd cast some stones. And the Lord had returned, has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. Behold, you're taken in your own evil, for you're a man of bloodshed. 
Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? <clears throat> Let me go over now and cut off his head. And that's what uh, Shemai deserved, have his head crushed. But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? If he curses and the Lord has told him, Curse David, then who shall say, Why have you done so? And then David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on their way, and Shemai went along on the hillside parallel with him, and as he went he cursed and cast stones and threw dust at him. Then we read, the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. So there's kind of a blessing that comes to the end. I just cite that because of some of the things we have to put up with. We all know that the information that comes out in the serpent treader is a pack of lies, but there's not a whole lot of point in answering it. It would be better, I think, just to allow Shemai to curse and trust God that as he wounds our heel this way, he intends to bless us. It's interesting that when David comes back as king in verses 16 to 23 of chapter 19, Shemai came out and was very apologetic. 2 Samuel 19, verse 16, this is when David is coming back after Absalom is dead. Then Shemai, the son of Gerah the Benjamite, who was from Behurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, with Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him, and they rushed to the Jordan before the king. They didn't let any grass grow under their feet to try to get it right with David. And then they kept crossing the ford to bring over the king's household and to do what was good in his sight. In other words, they chipped in to help out as much as they could to help David get back into the city. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord consider me guilty, nor remember what your servant did wrong on the day when my lord the king came out of Jerusalem, so that the king would take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned, therefore, behold, I have come out today, the first of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Should not Shimei be put to death for this? For he cursed the Lord's anointed. David said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Should any man be put to death in Israel today? For do I not know that I am king over Israel today? Let this man curse. It doesn't matter. I'm king, so it doesn't matter if he curses. Then the king said to Shemai, You shall not die. Thus the king swore to him. Interesting response. If you have trouble with the Serpent Treader magazine, newsletter, bulletin, whatever it is, keep Shemai in mind. God raises these things up to keep us on our, to keep our heels wounded so that we limp. He wants us to limp. Uh, it gets him more glory that way. Finally, and that's enough review, we have ten minutes left to finish. We have to come to the third temptation the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in all their glory and said, All these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. Strange temptation. Then Jesus said, Begone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. <clears throat> the temptation here is again the same as to Eve. Eve saw that the fruit was desirable to make her wise. And as we've studied that in previous weeks, we've seen that in context what that means is instant dominion. 
She thought she, if she ate the fruit, she would acquire magical understanding of everything, which would give her magical dominion over everything. She'd be just like God in the wrong sense. And she would have instant dominion. And Satan comes with the same temptation. Does Satan really have the world? Can Satan really make a legitimate offer? Yes, indeed. We see that in Luke chapter 4. These things have all been committed over to me, and I give them to whomever I please. Is that right? Sure. Because when God made the world, he gave the world to Adam. And Adam gave it to Satan. And now it's Satan's to do with as he pleases. Now, Jesus Christ gets it back. And Jesus came to get the world back from Satan, but not this way. Not as a gift, but as a result of destroying the devil. <coughs> How can this be a real temptation? I think that's the problem here. All of these things are very strange in the way that they're worded. If we look at them, how can it be a temptation for God to worship the devil? Is it even possible for Christ as the Son of God to worship the devil? How can that be possible? The only context in which the temptation can make any sense is in the context of the magnitude of the suffering of the cross, which we cannot imagine. According to Hebrews 12, verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You have not resisted as far as blood in your striving against sin. There's only one person in the history of the world who has ever resisted temptation to the point of blood, and that was Jesus Christ. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he sweated blood trying to resist temptation. That's what this is referring to. It's not referring to killing people or, any, or martyrdom. It is referring to bloody sweat in the intensity of resisting the temptation. And what was the temptation in the Mount of Olives where the bloody sweat was? Well, we read about it in Luke chapter 22. Why don't you turn there? You should have this before us. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 40, when he arrived at the Mount of Olives, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So we know that what's going to happen now is temptation, and he wants the disciples to pray that they not enter into it. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if thou art willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thine be done. That tells us what the temptation is. The agony of the cross would be so horrible that Jesus asks if there is any other way to redeem the world rather than go through it. Now, the agony of the cross is not primarily being nailed through the wrist to a piece of wood and gradually suffocating. As horrible as crucifixion was, the agony of the cross is being cut off from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. That's the point of tremendous horror at the cross. It's the horror of hell. And the great mystery and the most amazing thing, the thing that we'll never understand, and I don't think we'll ever understand this, there's no way to understand it being men, is how the second person of the Trinity can undergo being separated from the Father and the Son, the Father and the Holy Spirit. In one sense, that's not possible. In another sense, that's exactly what happened on the cross. That's the amazing mystery. Some people want to dissolve that mystery and say, well, it just can't happen. I'd rather leave it a mystery because it is what's going on. It's the amazing thing that God could die 
in the sense of being cut off from the other two persons, covenantally. That's the horror. And so Jesus asked, if there's any other way, let, let it be. An angel appeared from heaven, strengthening him. Remember, the angels appeared after the temptation in the wilderness and strengthened him. And being in agony, he prayed very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. There's resisting unto blood, the temptation. When he rose from prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now we know from the other Gospels that Jesus went back and made this petition three times. Remember that Paul asked three times for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and it wasn't. Jesus asked three times that he may not have to go to the cross, that the cup would not would be taken from him, but it was not. This is the context in which the temptation is real. Satan says, do you really want to go through all this? Listen, you can avoid it all. I'll give it to you if you'll grant that I was right, if you'll worship me. What does that mean? That was the whole point of Satan's coming in the first place. Satan's whole line is, everybody is God. And so it doesn't matter whom you worship. Hey, I'll worship you, you worship me. God should yield his exclusive demand for worship and allow each person to be his own God. That's the heart of rebellion. The heart of rebellion is, why should I submit to this guy over here? I'm just as good as he is. I have rights too. All human rights rhetoric is the rhetoric of Satan. I have rights inside myself, and I'm not going to yield my rights to anybody. I don't worship God any more than God should worship me. That's Satan's demand. We see it in the church. We see it wherever rebellion takes place. Why should I submit to these elders? I should be one too. I'm just as good as they are. I'm just as good as you are any day. That's what Satan said to God. Recognize that I was right. Allow each man to be his own God. Why do you have to be the only God? Why do you have to be the only judge? And if you don't, if you don't admit that I'm right and you still want to save the world, I mean, since you've gone through these first two temptations, I gather that you're really serious about this saving the world stuff. If you really want to save the world, you know what you're going to have to go through. Uh, wouldn't it be easier just to take the kingdoms of the world from me? And all you have to do is grant that I was right and allow you worship me and I'll worship you. And we'll all grant that each of us is equal, equality, good democratic theory. We're all equal and there won't be any more problem. And what does Jesus say back to him? It's interesting. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There's no arguing the point. Jesus doesn't enter into a discussion of the temptation. He simply rejects it. Why? Because this is the bottom line question of authority. And there, at that point, there's no discussion. Either God is the authority or he's not. Jesus says, look, I see the logic of your argument. The logic of your argument is that God and the creation should be equal. And we'll all, each of us will worship the other, strange as it may seem. You'll grant that I have rights, and I grant that you have rights. And I feel the force of your temptation because the alternative is absolutely horrible. But it is simply impossible, says Jesus, because only God is God, and you can't be God. I am that I am is the name of God. The Creator cannot stop being the Creator. 
The creature cannot stop being the creature. There is an ultimate absurdity and humor in the fall of man, in the rebellion of man, which is pointed to in the Psalter in Psalm chapter 2, many other places. It is flat ridiculous for man to try to make himself God. If you understand the creator-creature distinction, it is simply impossible. It's ridiculous. How can the creature, which is dependent, as we saw last week, ever become independent and self-dependent? It's ridiculous. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising an empty, vain thing? The kings of the earth have taken a stand. The rulers have conspired together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It's ridiculous. There's a sense in which the best way to deal with sin is to realize that it's ridiculous and laugh at it. You know, people take sin very seriously. Sometimes that's a prelude to falling into it. Sometimes it's better to realize that sin is ridiculous. Laughter is one of the best medicines. And that's what God says. I says, that's ridiculous, Satan. I cannot stop being God, and you cannot be God. It's not that you may not. You cannot. It's not possible for each of us to be equal. How can I create something equal to myself? It's always created and dependent on me. You just keep thinking about the doctrine of creation, which has been obscured in the church over and over again, still is obscure for obvious reasons. Satan likes to keep the doctrine of creation obscure. It's ridiculous. It can't be. And so the only response to this temptation is simply to reject it. You cannot worship anything else. You shall worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. Now suppose it were possible, because Satan makes the attempt and man has made the attempt. What happens when each man plays God and each man demands worship? Well, we just have a war of the gods, because I just assume you'd worship me, and if you're not gonna, then I'll have to kill you, because I'm not going to worship you. You're going to worship me, and you seem to think I ought to worship you. You get the war of the gods, and so, you know, it's the gingham dog and the calico cat scenario. They eat each other up after they fight all night. Nothing left. Moreover, if you rebel against God, you rebel against the only source of life, and so you just go into death. All those that hate me love death, says Proverbs 8. Evil can never rule the world. Evil may try, but it can never succeed because it goes against the basic nature of things. So what we see in this temptation is the bottom line temptation that Satan comes with at all times. To forget that God is the only source of everything and to try to take things on our own. And the temptation that comes to us is similar. It's similar. It's the, to forget that submission is the key to dominion. Satan comes and says, you want to take dominion over the world? Well, just take it by rebellion. Take it. Be equal to God and take dominion. Jesus says, no. I have to take it through on God's terms in submission to God. And that's going to involve a lot of suffering. Now, after Jesus has resisted these three temptations and they take place in the context of the wilderness with wild beasts and great hunger and it's very difficult to do and so it is with us, then we read in Luke, as we read before, that angels come and minister to him. And we also read in Luke that 
after he resisted the temptation and angels came and ministered to him. Then he went forth in the power of the Spirit. There's tremendous power that comes after resisting the temptation. So there are times in our lives and in the lives of our churches where we have to go through valleys, valley of the shadow of death, difficult times. We have to put up with Zeru, uh, with uh, Shemai and his cursing. It seems very, very painful, and the temptations are there. But if we resist them, then on the other side of it comes a great power and dominion. And so Jesus can go into the synagogue at Nazareth and say, Look, the year of Jubilee has come, and the land is going to revert to its original owners. Just exactly what Satan had said. Hey, you want the kingdoms? You can have them. Jesus says, No, I won't take them from you. And then immediately, in the power of the Spirit, he goes and preaches and says, I'm going to have the kingdoms of the world. They're going to revert to their original owners. The year has come. I'm going to conclude now. I realize that we're over time, but I have to conclude this today because no point in trying to go on with it next week with two or three minutes of material. I'd like to summarize the way I've tried to speak to this to us as Reconstructionists, that we have a particular kind of temptation that comes to Orthodox Christians and doesn't come to those who are not Orthodox. If we believed that bread was bad and that wealth is bad and that money is bad and that the good things of life are bad, we wouldn't be tempted to turn stones into bread. But you see, we are orthodox enough to realize that those things are all good. And so being orthodox, the temptation comes to us to turn stones into bread, to take the good things of life and lose sight of God's control and God's law. That giving is the key to wealth, that sometimes postponing the good things of life until we're ready for them is the proper way to enjoy God's world. That's a temptation that comes to us because we're orthodox. Second, we believe that glory is a good thing. We believe that it's good for Christianity to be manifest in the world as the triumphant, powerful religion. If we didn't believe that, it wouldn't be any temptation to us to manifest God's power. Because we would believe, oh, well, church should always suffer. Church should always be weak. We'll always be a minority in the earth. There's never going to be any millennium where things are just going to get worse and worse. But we don't believe that. We believe things are going to get better and better, and the church is going to become strong and powerful. So the temptation that comes to us is to minimize our weaknesses, to pretend like we don't limp, that we don't have a hurt foot, to go out and, in a false kind of a way, show forth a glory which actually is ours and not God's. To lose sight that weakness is the key to glory. If postponement or giving is the key to wealth, weakness is the key to glory. Something we tend to forget. And the third temptation that comes to us is, again, because we're orthodox. If we believe that dominion was a bad thing and that we were only supposed to pray in our closets and wait for Christ to come back, it wouldn't be any temptation to take the kingdoms of the world. We'd say, hey, we don't want that. That's what most Christians say today. But we think dominion is good. So we tend to lose sight of the fact that it's only through suffering and submission that dominion comes. It's precisely going through the dark times which give rise to dominion. And if we're unwilling to go through those dark times, if we try to go through them the wrong way, kill the Shemites who curse us, pretend that our foot is not wounded, not pray that we not enter into temptation. If we try to simply go for dominion, we will lose it, as men always have. If we allow God to bring us one step at a time, we will come to dominion. 
I hope this has been profitable. I'm not sure what we'll go to next week, but that concludes our series on the temptations of Christ. We're out of time, so let's stand for a word of prayer. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.